Turn, if you would, to Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. wonderful love of Jesus. Where would we be without the love of the Lord toward us and what mercy He has shown to everyone that is here, even those of you that don't know the Lord. He has been very merciful to you to bring you under His Word, bring you here today, and that is no light matter. Over the last, really it's been almost three years On many of the occasions we have come to the Lord's table, we have turned to the Song of Solomon. And I want us to turn here again. Chapter 7, verse 10 is where we will begin our reading and read through to the end of the chapter. We're we're getting close to the end. And I trust that it has been a help to you. And will be a help yet again today. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Let's hear the word of the Lord from verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Amen. May the Lord give us light in his word and enrich our souls here as we consider it together. Let's pray again for the Lord's help. Father, we're so thankful to read thy word, to consider it as the very word of God. And there are some passages that we need extra special help in understanding. Uh, We know this. We know this when Peter acknowledged that our beloved brother Paul has written some things that are hard to be understood, which some do rest to their own destruction. We would pray that we would never be those Bible twisters We pray that we would understand the Word and that we would seek to wrestle with its meaning and its application. We pray that as we come to these verses today, there would be help given. Lord, in all the utterances of man, may the Word of God prevail. In all the deep needs of the heart, may Christ reveal Himself as sufficient for every life. Lord, we would pray then that Thou wilt grant the Holy Spirit. O Spirit of God, our teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. May we know that powerfully today, to save souls, to prepare Thy people as we sit at this table before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard for us to deny someone's interest in us when they invite us to eat with them, when they bring us into their home, 
when they go to great lengths to put a meal before us and spend time and, and ask questions and endeavor to understand us and, and show that interest in us. It's hard to deny that they care. It's an important aspect, therefore, of the Christian existence. Hospitality, showing that hospitality to men, to women, to young people as opportunity arises and, and looking for those opportunities, endeavoring to seize upon them at every uh, turn of the Lord's providence. And so we stand here tonight, or this morning rather, with a table set before us. And just the same, it is very difficult for us to deny that the Lord cares when He set up a table where we are to sit and remember what He has done for us and what He continues to do for us day by day. Yes, we, we read the Word. We are reminded all the time of, of, of what His Word says. We trust that every Lord's Day we come and the Lord has a message for us. But to signify His love in this way is not something to pass over. Similarly, if it was just a table without the Word, it also would lack its power. We, we wouldn't have the meaning behind it. We wouldn't understand exactly the importance behind it if, if we were just coming to a table and sitting here and then left wondering, well, well, what's the significance of all of this? And that's why we have come, for the most part, over the, the last almost three years, every time we sit at the Lord's table to consider from the Song of Solomon, not just what Christ has done for us, but the particular intimacy that exists between Christ and His people, you need reminded of it. You do. There are all sorts of things that happen in the providence of God, all sorts of experiences that you go through from one week to the next, from one month to the next, in which you are made to doubt whether or not you are really loved, whether or not the Lord really cares. You can't help but look at other people's lives and think that they're flourishing, they're, they're, they're getting everything their heart could ever desire, whereas the Lord has plunged me into misery. Is that an indication of his lack of love? The devil would have us think so. The devil would come and he would use the providence of God to make us question the very love of our Lord Jesus to us. And our own carnal ways, our, our own inclinations of heart are, 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 are prone to this very same thing, aren't they? We go through those doubting moments, those, those occasions where, where we really wonder, does the Lord care for me? This book, as I have noted on many occasions, and I say again for visitors in our midst, this book, maybe ahead of any other book, elevates the relationship that exists between Christ and His people. When we speak of union, we are speaking of something that is foundational in our understanding of what we receive from Christ's hand. We are in union. We are in union with Christ. And therefore, all the benefits of the gospel are ours because we are in union with Christ. We are justified. Our sins are put away. There is no condemnation. We are given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and that spirit testifies and bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. We are sanctified. We are progressively helped on the road, enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness, being renewed by that spirit in the inner man. We have hope, the hope of glory, the promises of God that are yea and amen in Christ. These are ours. And yet the circumstances, 
The various situations we face in this world that is cursed by the fall cause us to question, does he really, does he really love me today? Like all relationships, even the, the details of this portion of God's Word give to us the, the ups and downs of relationships. In this case, it's the bride that falls short. On a number of occasions, she, she, she falls short. But she is never permitted to come to a point where she is made to feel like there's no return. There's always a way back. So as we look at verses 10 through 13 with the Lord's help and with the table of the Lord set and ready before us, where we anticipate a meal with Christ, anticipate Him drawing near to us to commune with our own hearts, I want us to consider these verses under the title simply, The Desire of the Church for Fellowship with Christ. The Desire of the Church for Fellowship with Christ. And this is abundantly clear. First of all, consider with me the union of their fellowship. Verses 10 and 11. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. The statement of verse 10 is, is not the first time we come across language like this. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 16 in your Bibles, and you will see the same assurance that is stated there by the bride my beloved is mine, and I am his. My beloved is mine, and I am his. If you can say that this morning, child of God, you are, you are of all people so eminently blessed. Amen. To know, to have the confidence, to state it plainly, and be assured of it by the Word of God and by the witness of the Spirit, my beloved is mine, and I am his. It's not something to pass over as if it's insignificant. Far from it. And so again, we are coming here at the end of chapter 7. I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. Not just that I can say that he is mine, but I am his. I am his. He has taken, he has taken ownership of me. He has claimed me as his own. And this is where the Bible's message of salvation is so encouraging that, that we are not in the business of trying to bend the arm of God and convince Him to love us. We haven't run to the Lord Jesus and begged Him to consider us in some fashion in which we, we would wonder whether or not He would show that love to us. We love Him because He first loved us. He first loved us. He first said, they're mine. He first said, you, you, for you I will shed my blood. For you I will give my life a ransom. For you I will rise again from the dead. For you I will ascend and ever live to intercede. For you I will return. And I will bring your very body out of the grave. Because all of you matters to me. All of you matters to me. Yes, our body and our spirits, which are God's, the Bible says. And as flawed and weak and deficient and even defaced as our physical frame may be, He is going to raise it because it is His. And He's going to perfect it. John Gill, remarking on verse 10, he says, These are the words of the church 
strongly expressing the assurance of faith she had of her union to Christ and interest in Him. Strongly expressing the assurance of faith. It is not presumptuous to say these words. I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. It's not presumptuous. It is the testimony of Scripture. It is the work of the Spirit to bring you to this sense of confidence. There is nothing, there is nothing, let let me underline it, there is nothing pious in an ongoing doubt, in an ongoing questioning of the promises of Christ to the sinner. There's nothing pious about that. When you lie on your deathbed, should you be granted one in the providence of God, you have every right to be absolutely certain. Not based on what you've done, but based on the promise of Christ to your soul. Your reassurance comes that that promise is still there, and He beckons sinners to Himself. And you come to Christ as a sinner. You rest in Christ entirely as a sinner. You bring nothing in addition to Him and His work. You see Him as all that you need. He says, you can, you can trust me. You can trust me. So we say it even long before our deaths, though our deaths are not far away for any of us. I am my beloved's. So there's a union here, isn't there? There is a union here. I am my beloved's. I belong to Him. And so if you're filled with doubt, you need to think about your union with Christ. You do. The doctrine of the believer's union with Christ is one of the most comforting doctrines in all of the Bible. And it's the reason why the Apostle Paul is repetitious on it. That's why he's always saying, in Christ, in Him, in whom, and so on and so forth. He's always pointing you into Christ. This is where you are. This is where you belong. Christ has brought you into Himself. This, this, is, your, this is your right to be assured that you're in Christ. You're not detached from Him. You're not cut off from Him. You don't go to bed and then the Lord goes to sleep and forgets that you belong to Him. You don't make, you don't sin and all of a sudden He turns His back on you like He has no interest in, in hearing your cry of repentance. You are His. You're His. By blood, by covenant, you are His. I am my beloved's. And there is, as he goes on to say, and his desire is toward me. There is an exclusivity expressed here, an implied sense that the nature of the union is exclusive. His desire is toward me, to the exclusion of others. That's the sense of it. It's not just his desire is toward me. It's not like someone having some general interest in in a body. It's, It's very specific. There's a sense that this particular individual, this particular body is, is peculiarly loved. And the bride knows this. His desire is towards me. To me. To you, Christian. Those of you in Christ. He says, you're mine. And my desire is toward you. I, I want you. I have claimed you. I have come and lived for you, and I've died for you. I've risen again for you. I'm praying for you. I will gather you unto myself. I'm praying. I'm praying that my glory would be revealed unto you. One day you'll behold that glory that was that was with Christ even before the world began. You'll see all of that. Why? Why? 
because you belong to him. Oh, Christians, see it. See it. Read over it. Be, be repeated in your heart. His desire is toward me. Tell yourself that over and over again. His desire is toward me. When the devil comes and puts a question mark over your standing before Christ, and you know, you know whom you have believed, you tell him, his desire is toward me. His desire is toward me. Just, 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 just think on that. Think on it. <laughs> that, that nothing will separate. Nothing. Nothing will come between. There'll be no diminishing of this desire. There'll not come a day where he loves you less. No. No, he loves you as much as it's possible for God to love. As he is. Yes, that's what it says, First John. As he is, as Christ is, so are we in this world. The Father loved the Son. We are the objects of divine love. We have received that love because of what Christ has done. His desire is toward me. Toward me. So you say it, Christian. Say it. Tell yourself it. When the doubts come in, when all the questions arise in your heart, where you wonder, when, 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 providence, when providence is telling what appears to be a different message, See, your problem is your interpretation. You, you try to interpret what's going on. And as you read the events of your life, you read into it a conflicting message than this text states. So tell me what you're going to believe. Your interpretation, your reading of divine providence or the eternal word of the eternal God? What, where are you going to rest your hope? Where are you going to hang your faith? Your interpretation of events? Or the word of God? His desires toward me. And so it goes on, this, this union is expressed further in verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go forth. Here she is. The bride is inviting Yes, that's what we do. We invite the Lord. We invite him to be with us, don't we? Come with us. Come with us, Lord. We arise on the Lord's day morning, and what's our prayer? Come with us to the house of the Lord. Come with us, Lord. Be there with us. Don't, don't stand away from us. Be right with us. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. And it goes on, let us... There's this, this emphasis on, on let us do these things. Let us do them. This is, the, this is the fact that we're walking together. So you didn't come to Christ and then sort of leave him behind and say, I've, I've made a profession and now I'm going to walk life, just go through life the way I did before. Or, or maybe there'll be some change, some, some alteration in the life, but, but it's not really with Christ. I mean, I mean this, this, is, this is where... This is where the rubber meets the road. This is true biblical Christianity. It is not simply some kind of joining to something, uh, assenting of certain things, believing certain things. It is, there's a conversion. And the evidence of that conversion is that you walk through the rest of your life desiring the company of none other than Jesus Christ. And you're prepared. You are prepared. You get to the realization you're prepared to have everyone else even forsake you. But if you have Jesus only... That's what matters. That's what you've come to understand. 
let us, if no one else goes with me, I know it's a little, not sure about the theology of it sometimes, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. But there's an element of truth in it. I mean, there's an element of, there, there's a point when we call on to the Lord, and insofar as that can be expressed, we can say, that's okay. But ultimately, we realize theologically, He has set His love on us before we ever set our love on Him. But the other little chorus then, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me. We get our children to sing that. Though none go with me, still I will follow. That's what she's saying. Come, my beloved. Let us. Let us. Let us. Yes, let us be here at the table. If there's no one else here that's in right fellowship, and may I be in right fellowship with Christ. It will be my desire that everyone here, that we all can say a collective, let us, let us all do this. It signifies agreement. It signifies union. You know, we're going together, aren't we? We're going together. So, so there's, there's harmony there. There's harmony there. It's very hard to say let us when we're at odds with one another. So come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. This is what we have in Christ. A union, a fellowship that is based on a real, living, vital union. But secondly, the location of their fellowship. The location of their fellowship. Verse 11 again, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. What does she mean by this? Let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. I want to note two things here as we understand field and villages. I I hope you you can follow with me here in in the comments that we make. And and in this location, note first of all, is a place of supplication. It is a place of supplication. In the field, she, she invites him, she encourages him to go along with her into the field. Now, how do we understand the field? You think these words are kind of thrown in there haphazardly, but they are not. If you go back in your Bible, right to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2, you will, you will see a repetition of, in relation to the word field. You may want to turn there. I will have some verses here for you just so you can see it for yourself. But we, we read of, for example, in verse 5 of Genesis 2, the plant of the field, same word, the herb of the field, Verse 19 speaks of the beast of the field. So you have all these references to the field. And then you come to chapter 3, verse 1, and there we are told, and and uh, let me just say, this is what you do when you study the Word. Sometimes you look into the words that are used, and you're trying to understand, what does she mean, go to the field? What's she saying there? And so you, you, try to, you try to look at the references and see if something comes to light. What's, what's the connection that is being dealt with here? And if you come to then Genesis 3 verse 1, we're told, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. These are the references where you find field. In contrast, in contrast, we're told, Genesis 2, 8 and verse 15, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep. He's not in the field. Now, this, this, isn't, this isn't something, again, it's not just haphazard. It's not, it's not just by chance. 
You have all these things that are in the field. You have the plant of the field, the herb of the field, the beast of the field. But man is in the garden. So, reading that, it's time to wake up for someone. <laughs> There's always some kind of alarm going off, isn't there? <laughs> this, this is the R one. We have 30 minutes to go. This is... If you're new here, you'll not maybe get that. But those of you who have been here the last few weeks, you'll know what I mean. After the fall, this is in Genesis 3 again. So, the serpent, verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent was more subtle than a beast of the field. He comes and questions and he says to Eve, Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That's where they are. That's where they are there. And the serpent has come from the field into the garden. And after the fall, we're told in verse 8, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. Still not in the field. They're in the garden. Now Eden, therefore, was that place that was safe. It was like a, a place of worship, a, a, a temple, as it were. It wasn't that Adam wasn't allowed to go beyond, but that was, that was the main habitation that's where he fellowshiped with the Lord in perfect harmony. That's where he had access to all the most vibrant, wonderful foods that were available to him. What are we told about the field? Well, the field then gets cursed. The curse comes to the ground. Genesis 3.18, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. All right, so now there's a curse that's on the ground. The curse then comes to the family. And again, this, this, is, this is expressed in a specific place. In chapter 4, verse 8, next, these are all the next references. After Genesis 3, 18, these are all like the next time the field is mentioned. Chapter 4, verse 8, Cain talked with, his, with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Then you have the next reference in Genesis 14, verse 7 where you see the curse in society. This is when Kedileomer comes to do warfare, and they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country, the word there translated country is field, of the Amalekites and also the Amorites. And then you have the curse in the grave, because the next mention is Genesis 23, where you have the exchange of the field of where the cave of Machpelah existed. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give me it for a possession of a burying place amongst you. So, in every reference, this is what I know, in every reference of the field, it's, it's, it's discouraging. Adam is in the garden, the beast of the field, all these things are in the field. And then, then, then Adam gets expelled out of the garden and he's in a field where it's cursed and he, he, he experiences the curse in the very ground itself. And then you have... Abel killed in the field, and this battle that takes place in the field, and then the, the buying of, of a place of death where you bury the dead in a field. Here's the thing. The very next reference is then in Genesis 24. The first positive thing that happens in a field is when Isaac went out to meditate in the field at eventide. So I thought about that. I thought... Is that not what's going on right here? Let us go forth into the field. 
Remember what Jesus said in the parable of Matthew 13. What did he say? He said, the field is the world. And the world is no friend in helping us in our walk with God. It has all the marks of, marks of the curse upon it. Everywhere we look, it's just cursed. We can't even labor without having to sweat. It won't, it won't help us in any way even to make ends meet. And there you have man striving, and there you have battles, and societal ills are all expressed in the field, in the world. But the one positive note comes when a man goes out into the field to meditate. Isaac goes out to, to meet with the Lord, to consider the Lord, to ponder the Lord. And the only, the only safe way, this is, the, this is the point, the only safe way to be in the field or the world is in fellowship with Christ. The only place where we can be assured that that we can enjoy something of this world, we can live in this world and actually have a measure of enjoyment is as we go to meet with Christ in the world. That's what Isaac went to do. He went out into the field to meet with God. And that's what we're called to do. And this is, this is the desire of the church. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Yes, yes, we're in this world is cursed. The mark of the curses is everywhere to be seen. But I can go there if you're with me. If the Lord Jesus is with you, child of God, you can exist in the world, you can exist above the world, you can exist joyfully amidst all of its trials and its difficulties. The key is that you make the world a place of supplication, a place of meeting with Christ. If you don't, don't expect this world to be a friend to you. You want the world to deal fairly? To be friendly? To help you? It's not going to happen. Oh, it may promise a lot. It will. It will. In fact, it will. It will promise you all sorts of things. And then it will disappoint you over and over and over again. But Christ will not. And so she, here's the church, here's the church in the world, and thinking it right, isn't it? Come, my beloved, let us go forth and bring, bring Christ with you into the world. When you, when you head out, do your business, Christian. Who do you need with you? Christ. This was Moses' desire, wasn't it? If thy presence go not with us, carry us not up hence. I don't want to go without you, Lord. I don't want to take a step without you. I want the reassurances of what you told me back in Exodus 3. Certainly I will be with thee. That's what the Lord has said to Moses. And that's the only thing he can lean and depend upon in this wilderness and all the dangers that surround. What, what do you need in this, in this cursed world? You need Christ. And so what was the reassurance to the disciples who are being told, go into all the world? Yes, go into all these places. <laughs> And there's going to be lots of hostility. You're going to go to places that will hate you, despise you, and they will ultimately put you to death. But you go into that world, and lo, I am with you always. I'm with you. You go there, 
You go out into the field, you go out into the world, you face all the trials and the difficulties and the battles and the hardships and the animosity. You face it all. But if Jesus, if I only have the Lord Jesus. So that's her prayer. That's your prayer. That's your prayer. Going out this week into the world, you say, come my beloved, let us go forth into the field. That's what you pray. You pray it now, in your head, in your heart. As you face the world that just wants to nail you. Oh, it does. It does. Hates, hates you living faithfully for Christ. The world hates. Hates you honoring Him. Hates you worshiping Him. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. But there's more. It's not just a place of supplication. It's a place of shelter. Let us lodge in the villages. Now, there's a, you, you can see the, the sense of shelter there. In the translation, let us lodge in the villages. What you don't see, what you do not see in your beloved translation, in our beloved translation, what you do not see is how you would read this in the Hebrew text. If you were reading this in the Hebrew text, you would be struck because the noun, villages, is a very unfamiliar word in one sense, it's not used very often, but it looks almost identical to a verb. And that verb, you will find 102 times in your Old Testament scriptures, 71 of which you will find translated atonement. Covering. First use of it is the pitch on the ark in the book of Genesis. The covering. And so the sense of shelter is covering. But if you're reading it in Hebrew, it's not just any covering. It's not just any covering. It's not just any shelter. It's a specific shelter. It is, it is drawing from. It is drawing from the understanding of a gospel-centered shelter. The villages aren't random places. The villages point you to the only place of shelter. Beneath the cross of Jesus. I fain would take my stand. It's right there. In the shadow of that cross. It's right there. That's, that's what she's saying. She's saying, let us lodge. Let us lodge in the covering. Let us lodge in the shelter. But that shelter is a, is a blood-stained shelter. The only shelter that there is for you is Jesus Christ. The Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. We run into Christ. We run into what He has done for us. And, and, and that's, that's where we come today. Where does he bring us out of the heat of the day, out of the challenges of your life? Where does he bring you? What does he have you think about when you face all the trials of a world and its curse and its, the experience of the fall and the, the weakness of your own soul? Where, where does he bring you? He brings you to a table, but it's not any table. It's not just any ordinary meal. It makes you remember. It makes you 
makes you remember the central act, the climactic act of all history. When the Son of God dies upon a cross, when he was made a curse for us. And he brings you this morning, right there, to think about Calvary. This is a village. It's a village. We say, Lord, come. Come with me. Come with us. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us lodge in the shelter. Not any old shelter. In that precious shelter you provided by the shedding of your blood. That's the shelter where I want to be found. That's what the church is meant to be, you know. The assembly of the saints is blood marked. It's owned by blood. That's what happened, wasn't it, in the Passover? From, this, from which this is drawn. They put the blood over the doorposts and the lentils of the home. When I see the blood, I pass over. The judgment passes over, but, but there in the home was the favorable presence of God. So let us lodge in the villages. Oh, may the Lord, may the Lord come with us today. Not just to this table, but may he lead us to the cross. May he bring us right there for his name's sake. Yes, it's the place of shelter. It's where you need to be. <laughs> where do you need to put your sin? Where, where can you hide your sin? You, you, you can do like Ekan. You can try and find your own little place to hide your sin. You can try and do that. But it won't succeed. But you can come and acknowledge before the Lord. You can acknowledge your sins before Him. And He will provide the forgiveness you need. Thirdly, the ambition in their fellowship. The ambition. There's an ambition here expressed, isn't there? Verses 12 and following. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Note here first a priority. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us get up early. <laughs> this, is, this, this is the way. This is, this is what the Lord would have for us. The beginning of all backsliding is right here. Not getting up with a prioritization of meeting with the Lord. It is getting up into our day and facing it as if we can deal with all things on our own. And we can't. And right throughout Scripture, it doesn't matter where you turn, when, it, when you have someone going on with God, and you see it, you see it so, it's, it's, it's like put there, right? We, 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 we sang Psalm 51. And when you go and read the history there of what led to that sin and that confession that comes from David, it tells us clearly that he got up in the evening, got up late in the day. And it's not just a little detail again. The scripture doesn't give you those details for you to ignore. It's telling you something is awry in David's heart. Something's amiss. And so the sin comes as a result of this, this haphazard spirit. An example, rather, which David himself gives to us for he desires to, to, early in the morning and at 
noon and the night will I seek thee. That's what he longs for normally. Here she, the church expresses the same. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Your cold heart begins right here. Your ardor fading begins right here. It's when you face your day and you ignore the Lord. You know it. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to batter you over the reality with that. I don't have to convince you. You know it. When you begin the day and the first thought in your mind and the desire of your heart, I don't care what time, forget the early, because some of you I know, there's some here, you work third shift. So it's going to look a little differently for you. But it's the priority. That's the thing. It's the priority. And there is here, there is a prioritization. Let us get up early. And if we don't, that's where backsliding begins. Isn't it? Oh, Peter, Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? There in the garden, watching Christ, bearing that cup, considering all that was lying before him. And he invites Peter and James and John to come and watch with him, and they they fall asleep. Oh, they fall asleep. And if they'd only done what the Lord encouraged them to do, Maybe, and I know it's all hypothetical, but maybe what we would have read of them might look different. So you know it. You know, those of you know this morning, if you're coming here cold in heart, you, you know why. I can tell you now, if you're cold, if you're indifferent, if you're not inflamed with love for Christ, if there's a lethargy in your soul, if you have to admit that you have left your first love, I can tell you now, it begins where your day begins. Every time. So, there is a priority. Let us get up early to the vineyards. And there's a purpose. Why, why you get up early? To go to the vineyards. To go to the vineyards. Why? Let us see if the vine flourish whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. Let's go and look at the fruit. Let's go and look at the fruit. Ah, it's the examination of the heart, isn't it? It's the examination of the life. Let's, let's go and look. Let's go and look at the heart, Lord. Don't let me look at my heart on my own. Don't let me do that. No, 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 no. So we dealt with that a few months back, didn't we? The morbid introspection. The kind of looking into yourself and, and tearing yourself apart and trying to find some some sanctimonious effort of, of being hard on yourself and not keeping the gospel central. So here, she, you see how she's in the right place now. She's in the right place. Let us, let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates. But let, let us go. Lord, go with me. Go with me to look. Look at my life to, to consider it. I'll tell you, this, this, this past week in preparation to preach Luke chapter 10, if it was not for me being able to say something like this, let us see if the vine flourishes. I might look at my heart and, the, and the, the challenge of what's commonly known as the Good Samaritan. I'd be in despair, utter despair. That, that, that passage will tear you up, lay you low. So, let us see. Let us see. Let's look. Because you are. You are, to, you are to look at your life. You are. When the Word of God brings, 
brings challenges to do, exhortations to, to love one another, to, to abstain from all appearance of evil. All, all, the, all the expectations of Scripture, I have to weigh that up and, and ask myself, is, is that there? Are the good things there? Is the bad there? But I want the Lord Jesus to be with me. I don't want to do it without Him there. That'd be an awful thing. Do you know what happens then? Then I start thinking that, that the foundation of my salvation is based on those things. But it's not. It's not. Thank the Lord it's not. And then, you see, in the middle of that, there's, there's this consecration aspect, even in looking at the fruit. There will I give thee my loves. It's as, it's as I look at my heart and look at the fruit there, and, and I realize, I realize, oh, look, look, I'm not everything I'm meant to be, but I'm a whole lot better than I was. And there are many sins and addictions and crimes and, and all sorts of ill behavior and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and all sorts of things that I was guilty of, and they are not there. It's certainly not to the measure that they were there before. And I think to myself, why? Why? Why are they not there? Because of Him. It's His grace. And so what does that tell me? What does that, wait, how, does, how does that motivate me? How does that motivate you? I look at my life. I see it's transformed. The Spirit genuinely is working in my life. And then I see it's all because of His grace. It's His Spirit in me. And then what do I do? Thank you, Lord. I will give you my loves. I'll give you my heart. You haven't failed. You haven't failed. I gave you my life and you have upheld me and kept me and walked with me and encouraged me. And when I see what you're continuing to do, I will give you my heart again. And so day by day, week by week, whatever way the Spirit comes and strives in your heart, what do you do, child of God? What do you do? You give Him afresh your heart. Yes. Yes, you don't. You don't show your love to your spouse by, by the interest that you had in them on your honeymoon. No. No, it's an ongoing. It's an ongoing giving of ourselves to one another. It is. Ongoing. And so it is with Christ. The church gives their love to Christ. You, Christian, you give your love to Christ. There, amidst all the fruit of His work, all the great things that he has accomplished. And it goes on, then you have, there's a passion, verse 13 as well, not only a, a priority and a purpose, but there's a passion, verse 13, the mandrakes give a smell. What, what are mandrakes? You find these in Genesis chapter 30 mentioned, and there's all sorts of debates. Some people, it was a, it was a, it was a fruit that was identified with love. Others say it was certain flowers that give forth particular fragrances. Some say it's a mixture, anything with a pleasant smell. Whatever it was, it's identified with love for one another. You know, like you go and you get a bunch of roses and you're communicating something with that, whether you say it or not. You know, it's a young lady and there's a 12 roses sent to her at a certain time of the year. She's thinking, she, she, she knows, she knows there's a message there. There's a message, isn't there? And, and she knows it. She knows it. 
It's not because someone's not interested. It's because someone is interested, keenly interested. And so, this isn't new. This isn't modern as much as it's been commercialized. I don't know. Maybe there were mandrake sellers back then who took advantage at certain times of the year. I don't know. But the mandrakes give a smell. Not our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old. Yes. Yes. This, is, this has been a... This relationship is not just in the present. It is right up to date. Which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. I have done it all for you. Here is. Here's all the fruit. Here's all the signal of my love. All the signs of my dedication. I have laid it up for thee, O my beloved. Let me ask you, Christian. Let me ask you as we close. Have you laid up your life to Christ? I mean, really. Really. Have you ever gone through the trial of consecration? Have you? Have you ever, have you ever battled? Have you battled repeatedly with it? I hope you have. I hope you have. Because unless you're some kind of anomaly, which I know you're not, your love wins, and you drift, and you forget, and you get cold. You do. And things come into your life and they, 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 even for a moment or for a season they, they seem to have an appeal to your soul and all of a sudden you, you find yourself, you're, you're getting carried away with ambition or, or riches or, or, or a relationship or something else. It can be a whole host of things. A plethora of things that will take your affection from Christ. And you need to recognize it this morning. You need to say, you're right preacher, you're right. My heart has drifted. There are things that have taken my attention off Christ. And I remember better days. Days of real affection. Days of real consecration. Days when I could honestly say, whatever you want for me to do, Lord, I will do. Whatever you say, I'm there. Wherever you call, I will go. There, there's no holding back. There's no holding back. That's where you need to be, Christian. It is continually staying there and getting back there when you're not. Do you think the Lord wants your half-hearted efforts? No. No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. He, he abundantly deals with you to, to encourage you. He, he did everything for you to absolutely give all of yourself to Him. The cross should be the, the final argument on just how much I owe Him. Is it not? Is it not? It should be. It should be. Oh, it's warm in here this morning. I can tell by looking at you. I warned these men to make sure watch the temperature in here as the cold weather comes in because I've been here three years now and every time the cold weather comes in it gets hot in here. And I see it in faces. You're struggling. You're struggling. Waking up and think seriously about where you are. Read the words again for a final time. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Did you see this union? It's all about him. There's no place for anything else or anyone else. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. 
There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and outer gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. It's, you see the emphasis. All I care about is you, meeting with you, spending time with you. And the Lord says to you this morning, he says, yes, yes. And the feeling is more than mutual. What I care about is you. Come, dine. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Wherever your heart is, Christian, the Lord is more than willing to receive you. He's shed his blood. He has abundantly expressed that love. And you don't have to be in any doubt as to his love towards you. Receive it afresh this morning. Fellowship with him. Whatever hindering things are in your life, give them up. They're not worth it. Christ, give to Christ everything that you are and have. Lord, help us in this. As we come to this table, draw strangely near. May those hearts that are cold, may they be warmed in the way that only the Spirit can warm those hearts. I don't know what it means for any of us. There may be some of us. And with the consecration of our lives afresh, you would have us to do something with that. At the very least, you would have us get up and prioritize our fellowship with Christ and begin our days in the right fashion. Give help, Lord. Meet with us now around this table, we pray in Jesus' name.